Welcome to New Books in Law. I'm Jim Vonderheit. Surprising things can happen when disciplines collide. In the 1980s, law collided with economics and gave rise to a whole new method of analysis, centering on incentives and called, appropriately enough, law and economics. My guest today, Lynn Stout, was trained in the 80s and has made her mark in that discipline through work in its vineyards for many years. She's become a respected scholar of law and economics and is UCLA's professor of corporate and securities law. But in the meantime, since the 80s, other collisions have been happening. For example, economics has been colliding with psychology. When psychologists and sociologists are introduced to the main characters of economic analysis, they are horrified. The protagonist of law and economics for 30 years has been a person called homo economicus, a theoretical individual, someone driven by incentives, who rationally maximizes his own utility at every opportunity. Anything he does that benefits others is only for the sake of his own reputation or maybe long-term gain. Psychologists have their own word for homo economicus. They call him a psychopath. Unfortunately, only a tiny sliver of the population behaves like he does. Economists are updating their field with the experimental insights from behavioral economics, revealing that nobody acts like homo economicus. Professor Stout believes that legal scholars should do the same. So what happens when law and economics gets a proper handle on social science's recent findings about human unselfishness, an empirical reality called pro-social behavior, independent of all incentives, and driven entirely by certain kinds of social cues? The answer is in Professor Stout's new book, Cultivating Conscience, How Good Laws Make Good People, which is a trailblazing new new intervention in the field of law and economics. Absorbing vast quantities of social science, Professor Stout updated her own field of study by challenging its most basic premise. The result is a book of lasting importance. I spoke with Professor Stout, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, hello, Professor Stout. Uh, thank you for joining us, um, and uh, welcome to New Books in Law. Uh, we're, I'm looking forward to talking about uh, your terrific book, Cultivating Conscience. And uh, again, thanks. Uh, welcome. Well, and thank you so much for inviting me. My pleasure. Uh, maybe we could start. Um, there's so many ways we could situate your book among the disciplines, uh, and so many things to say about how it fits in in a, a wonderful niche. But I thought we might situate it first biographically, and you could describe uh, what you've uh, done leading up to the point where you are, and um, then we'll talk about how you came to write this book. Well, it's, it's, there's an interesting story behind this book, because I came to study the subject of conscience from a place that most people never associate with conscience, which is my study of the business world. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first went into law teaching and scholarship, I focused on securities regulation and behavior in stock markets, and I brought with me the old familiar homo economicus model of rational selfishness that all of us who went to the law, to law school in the 1980s were drilled in, and it seemed like a perfectly good model, and I think it still is a perfectly good model for describing what goes on in anonymous markets where people are exchanging securities. But then I began doing work in corporate governance which meant I had to roll up my sleeves and get into the internal workings of corporations. And I also began to be involved in the business world more directly as a um, director of a mutual fund family, which was a wonderful opportunity to actually observe 
how business does business. And one of the odd things about this experience was the more I looked into corporate law and corporate practice, the more I became convinced that that old familiar homo economicus model was just not capturing the behavior I was seeing. In fact, the business world wouldn't function if people, in fact, behaved in the purely selfish fashion that most law and economics um, uh, analysis assumes they do. And this was this was a real puzzle to me because how can you have this enormous business world that employs that controls trillions of dollars uh, worth of money and employs uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, and uh, and have it not fit the model we've been applying to it all these years? So that was the puzzle that brought me to the book. Excellent. And before that, you. Uh we're focused on securities law as sort of a specialization, it sounds like. And then there's a step you describe uh, where in applying it, it turns out that corporate governance was just a different universe. Could you give us an example? Uh, well, the, the classic example and the puzzle that really had me pulling out my hair was trying to understand the institution of the board of directors. Mm. Because if you study corporate law, you very quickly come to realize that what the basic rules of corporate law provide for is that control over corporate assets is given into the hands of people who have virtually no financial incentive to do a particularly good job. <laughs> now, directors do have an incentive not to try and steal corporate assets um, because there is the duty of loyalty, and that is pretty strictly enforced and has real teeth. But as anyone who takes corporate law remembers, there's this doctrine called the business judgment rule, which does a pretty good job of insulating directors against any charge they were negligent. So the puzzle was, how could we have evolved this institution where most of the assets in our society are placed in the hands of people who don't personally profit um, beyond their director's fees from overseeing those assets and don't have any really strong legal obligation to do an optimal job. The, the whole thing just didn't make sense on the homo economicus model. But it did make sense if you were willing to take uh, what seemed to me at the time to be the great leap and assume that directors might want to do a good job just because they ought to. <laughs> so that was, that was the question that set me out on this quest really over a decade ago. I said, you know, is there any reason in science to think that, in fact, maybe people will try and do things not because they personally benefit in a material fashion, but because they think it's the right thing to do. And I was fascinated to discover, and, and really I approached this, my goal was to approach this from purely scientific background, which meant I wasn't going to make any assumptions about human behavior. I wasn't going to start off assuming that people are either nice or nasty. What I wanted to do was roll up my sleeves and start reading everything I could get my hands on in the life sciences literature and the behavioral literature, look at the science of it, and see what I could find out. And I was fascinated to discover that there's, in fact, an enormous empirical literature on what now uh, I think social scientists and life sciences are, are sort of agreeing on the label pro-social behavior. There's an enormous literature on pro-social behavior, and it has been almost untapped by legal scholars. So a, that's... A, see, go ahead. Well, there's a really interesting uh, 
paradox there because there's so much focus now on how boards of directors don't work <laughs> and things don't work very well necessarily in terms of their incentives. But you noticed how mu- the glass is more than half full, that actually boards of directors do function pretty well considering that their incentives are all out of whack. And you started from that place. That seems to uh, be go along with your focus on how prosociality doesn't get noticed. People don't notice when things are working well. Well, and that was exactly right because, you know, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I do think that some of the, the contemporary focus on trying to, quote, fix boards of directors is really misplaced, and it shows a sort of lack of knowledge of business history mm. because if you look at modern boards, they have better governance than they've ever had at any time in American business history, and we're not. At least they have better governance if you buy into the homo economicus model, and we're not getting good results. Uh, Don't forget we've had public corporations in the United States since the turn of the century, and uh, they've been governed by unaccountable boards of directors for most of that century-long period and turned in some pretty good results. So, uh, you know, there there was this irony. Why didn't people see, why did people assume that somehow the institution of the board of directors had to be broken because they couldn't see the material incentives? Why couldn't they see that, in fact, it had functioned very well for a rather long period of time? And that led me into another interesting phenomenon. When When I left my conversations with scientists, and started having conversations with economists and legal scholars, it was almost like I went from one planet to another because the scientists all took the phenomenon of pro-social behavior very seriously. And what I found over and over in conversations with economists and uh, with law professors was that they simply denied that it existed. They found the most amazing rationalizations to explain the most obviously conscientious behavior as purely self-interested. And I began to realize that there was some odd mental blockage. They couldn't see conscience. And it turns out um, that there's actually scientific reasons, uh, you know, good explanations and theories for why we don't see good behavior. One of my favorite uh, tests when I talk about this phenomenon in in, um, public speaking is I like to put up a picture of a street in New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. And it's a street scene and the streets are filled with water and people are wading in water up to their hips. And there's maybe 40 people in the streets of New Orleans. And I ask my audience, what do you see? And mostly what they say is, oh, well, I see water and I see people wading in the water. And I say to them, you know what you're seeing, but you're not seeing it? You're seeing people who are not looting. Yeah. And that's just a wonderful example. When we turned on our televisions, we were all appalled to see scores of people looting stores. None of us ever stopped to think of the wonder that there were hundreds of thousands of people who were not looting. Because for, you know, for various, and each of them individually, but multiple reasons, we just ignore good behavior. We, we fixate on, we're fascinated by the bad stuff. <laughs> it blinds us to the good stuff. Really interesting. And you also give the example of the uh, people walking past the homeless person who has a cup of money uh, and maybe he's asleep. Everyone may comment that people aren't putting money in, but you say, isn't it remarkable that no one is taking money out? Another good example, I think, of that blindness. And the other point that you seem to make that I think is really interesting about incentives is that we have had sort of an experiment in changing uh, corporate uh, leaders' incentives with the whole stock option craze. And 
uh, it's not something I'm, I'm not sure how much you go into it. I, I've forgotten, but it does seem like that turned out to backfire. We tried well, to design I mean, incentives. That problem is what I'm now focusing my attention on specifically the, the, um, and I think it's fair to say we do not have a lot of data that suggests we're getting good results from the modern fixation on incentives. So um, you know you can definitely tell a story that one of our biggest problems in the corporate sector may in fact ha- be the result of changes in the tax code in 1993 that required corporations to use material incentives to tie pay to performance, and it was it was that move that in fact has led to a lot of the problems we're experiencing today where executives are focusing on maximizing the value of their stock and their stock options and they're not focusing on running their corporations in a fashion that benefits their shareholders and society. You know, in a way we've we've distorted their perceptions and we've driven them in the direction of acting like homo economicus. Because, by the way, one of the most important lessons um, that uh, I want to mention that comes from the life sciences and the social sciences is that um, most people are subject to what I call a Jekyll Hyde phenomenon. Yes, most people have a conscience. There's two or three percent who don't, and we call them sociopaths or psychopaths. Right. But I'm, I'm relieved to report that most of us have a conscience. But the funny thing about it is that it doesn't come into play except in the right situations. And so if you look at the data on human behavior, what you'll find is the same person in one situation will be very pro-social, follow ethical rules, make sacrifices for others, focus on helping the group, not on maximizing their own gains. That same person in a different situation will behave as if they care only about their own material rewards. And this shift in behavior is so basic and so dramatic, it shows up on brain scans. You actually use different parts of the brain when you are making pro-social decisions than you use when you are making purely selfish decisions. So the, the trick to me was to make people realize that we all have this dual aspect of our natures, that we're all capable of very conscientious behavior, but we're also capable of very selfish behavior, and then to start using that knowledge, um, use it as a tool for pursuing policy. Because, of course... There are times when you want people to be selfish. Selfishness can be a great motivator in some situations. But in others, it's pretty dangerous and can come around to bite you. So going back to your question about incentives, how many times do we have to do this experiment? It hasn't worked that well for CEOs. We've all seen the teacher scandals where you've got teachers paid for for performance who are helping their students cheat on their tests. They're just changing the answers on the tests themselves. Where, uh, you know, the, the... uh, the U.S. government is looking into trying to come up with pay-for-performance for doctors, which is not an experiment that I'm all optimistic about. Um, and we seem to be ignoring both what we see around us every day in terms of the ability to motivate people to do a good job because they think they ought to, and also the lessons of recent years where this emphasis on incentives simply hasn't worked out that well. Right. Um I wonder how much you consider the book. I have several comments about that, but I wonder in the uh, soundbite version, whether you consider the book an answer to Cass Sunstein's book nudge that got so much attention recently uh, saying incentives maybe shouldn't be our number one focus. Maybe we should think about the whole social context. I think of it as a compliment uh, Mm. to, to nudge. Although I, I'm a little embarrassed to put them in the same, uh, same uh, sentence because, uh, Cass and, and Richard uh, 
you know, theirs is a bestseller, and this one is much more oriented uh, toward an academic audience. But um, it's a compliment in the sense that Nudge looks at the rational part of the rational selfishness assumption right. and questions that. And what I thought was interesting was that there was so little work being done on questioning the selfishness part of the rational selfishness assumption. And I do this book as a step in that direction. So if there's anyone who's interested in behavioral economics and who's interested in this possibility that people behave pro-socially, by the way, they're perfectly rational. There's nothing crazy about wanting to benefit the group or to follow ethical rules. Um, and if you're interested in understanding how people rationally pursue those objectives instead of their own uh, material gain, this book provides a survey because what I thought after after I read all of that work in, I must have read a thousand papers, Jim, easily, oh. and I thought, you know, nobody else should have to do this. <laughs> At a minimum, what I can do is, uh, you know, summarize the results of decades of experimental work in the life and social sciences so that people who are interested in this phenomenon don't have to start from scratch. They can start with the book and it'll give them a survey. And then the next question, and in some ways the interesting question is, what does our knowledge about prosociality allow us to do when it comes to shaping human behavior? Right. And I, I definitely want to get to the prescriptive part uh, pretty soon. I, I've found so much in the descriptive section of the book so powerful, though, um, as well. And I think the book has this terrific balance of describing the way things actually are, the way scientists find them actually to be, and the way uh, you know accidental experiments like the options uh, fiasco show things to be on the one hand, and then on the other hand, also thinking about how things can be manipulated and what we should do in policy terms. On the descriptive side, I, I noticed um, this uh, terrific thread running through uh, a large part of the book where you say that the law has actually evolved more or less naturally to match our understanding of pro-social behavior, even as legal theory has tried to get uh, stricter. For example, in the case of punitive damages, uh, you describe that pretty compellingly as something that fits with what science is now finding. Absolutely, and and I think uh, you know not to not a contradiction. I will. The law is not an ass. <laughs> um, <laughs> the law, and especially the common law, um, has indeed evolved to channel the behavior of real people, not Homo economicus. And so, one of the other interesting things I found was once you study the phenomenon of prosociality. All sorts of legal rules that don't fit very well in the law and economics mold begin to make a lot more sense. And you can understand them as sort of the results of decades, even centuries of judicial experience with real human behavior. Um, and uh, as a result, a lot of these doctrines that law and economics types like me, I do have a case book in law and economics. Uh, you know, I used to tear my hair out over uh, some of these doctrines, like uh, the question of why is criminal law so different from tort law? And, uh, you know, why do courts in relational contract cases seem so unable to reach a rational decision? And looking at it through the lens of real human behavior, those doctrines made sense and they work. They work, you know, these are legal rules that work pretty well for real pro-social humans. So it's frustrating to make sense of them theoretically, but in, in reality, they're doing exactly what they're meant to do, um, and they match what the science says about humanity as well. 
Right. And sometimes when, when, uh, when legal experts come in and push to change the rules to sort of make them fit the theory instead of fitting the lived experience and the scientific evidence on behavior, you actually get results that are kind of productive. Right. Um, so I wonder, you mentioned relational contracts. I wonder if we could use that as an example of uh, a place where the law is working so much better uh, than any theory sort of accounts for. Um, what is a relational contract? Well, any, any contract scholar will tell you that all contracts are incomplete, but, uh, but I would say some contracts are way more incomplete than others. Mm. So um, a, uh, a typical relational contract would be one between two parties who are going to be dealing with each other. Um, they're going to be pursuing together some project under conditions of a fair degree of uncertainty. Uh, they don't know how it's going to work out. And as a result, it's impossible for them to fully specify in the contract what should be done in the event of any of the possible contingencies that could arise. Classic example is, ironically enough, um, a contract to hire a chief executive officer of a company. Um, you really can't anticipate in advance all of the challenges the company is going to face and come up with a perfect contract that details exactly what the executive should do. Um, you know, it, this is true even when you're building, remodeling a kitchen, you run into incompleteness. What happens if you find termites? What happens if the paint you order is not available for six months? So um, in relational contracts, what the science tells us is that the first thing you want to do is you want to make sure that the partner you pick to contract with is someone who is going to be pro-social towards you. They're not going to try and exploit the gaps in the contract. If you were to enter a relational contract with homo economicus, uh, that person would make your life miserable. The first time an unanticipated contingency came up, they would try and use that as an excuse to renegotiate the whole thing in their favor. So one of the um, insights that my study of prosociality offered was that it was possible that what was really going on in relational contracts is that, in a sense, one of the implied terms of the contract is that the two parties agree to take account of each other's welfare, to be, to some extent, altruistic toward each other. And this actually fits in kind of uh, neatly with the observation that a lot of contract scholars have made, that there is this implied term of good faith that courts always interject into relational contracts, but they don't actually enforce it because it turns out it's unenforceable, but it has a signaling function. It tells the parties that um, you expect them to be pro-social toward each other. And that signal itself will change their behavior. It'll move them into Dr. Jekyll mode. Remember, Dr. Jekyll was the nice guy. Right. Mr. Even Hyde though, was the bad guy. Even though the name so, sounds scarier. And yeah, that's but, a case where the authority of the court, that's in your uh, one of your categories there, that the authority of the court can signal things uh, even though it doesn't change the incentives. Right. So so our, our shift from pro-social modes of behavior to asocial modes of behavior is largely triggered by these social cues. And one of those social cues is uh, sort of the directions authority, even when it's not enforceable, so that all of this case law on the duty of good faith actually can shape human behavior. And that's a role the courts can play, you say, um, even though the actual litigation, when someone does take advantage of a contract, might not happen, uh, or it might not be worth it. Or uh, it might be the equivalent of flipping a coin. Right. 
But uh, the, the point is to prevent the, the point is to signal to the parties that they're supposed to treat each other fairly so they don't get the litigation in the first place. And although it obviously doesn't work well in all cases, it works far better than you would ever think if you bought into the homo economicus model. I was also interested in the way that uh, some of this behavioral science explains the conduct of plaintiffs who pursue such litigation, even though the odds are it's not worth it in the end, right? Plaintiffs seeking to punish uh, those uh, folks, those non-pro-social contract partners. Um, and you say the science speaks to that phenomenon as well. Yes, there's there's this interesting form of pro-sociality um, that uh, that uh, evolutionary scientists in particular have studied pretty carefully. It's uh, called altruistic punishment, and it's when people altruistically will incur a personal cost to punish someone who is behaving in an antisocial fashion. So one of my favorite examples of this, there's a, there's a, uh, a wonderfully entertaining as well as enlightening um, article. I know one of the authors is, is Jeff Miller up at uh, NYU, and he was studying uh, reported instances of people who had tried to altruistically enforce the rules on handicapped parking. So these were non-handicapped people who were accosting people who were illegally parking in handicapped spaces. <laughs> and it's a, it's a classic example of this altruistic punishment. Well, you can think of um, a plaintiff who brings a lawsuit um, when they recognize that they're not going to benefit materially, but they just said, you know, you, you've heard plaintiffs say this over and over again. You know, the guy just did something wrong and he shouldn't be allowed to get away with it. <laughs> um, it turns out that that impulse... Uh, to punish transgressors is actually very important in the evolution of pro-sociality in the first place. And the law, even if courts are pretty incompetent at deciding who is at fault in a relational contract case, still provides a pretty good vehicle for those altruistic punishers. So there's, a, there's another wonderful article. I can't remember the name of the author, but I think it's called In Praise of Irrational Plaintiffs. <laughs> that mm -hmm. makes a very similar argument that says that even though courts are not very good at deciding relationship contracts, it's the very fact that you can drag someone into court who has taken advantage of in a, re in a relational contract case makes those sorts of breaches less likely. So even though the, the litigation itself may seem very inefficient from a social perspective, knowing that most of us have at least some capacity for that kind of vengeful reaction it keeps all of us in line. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and as a result, too, uh, there's a similar effect that I think you describe in tort law, where the disincentives uh, really often wouldn't be enough, according to the, the classical theories. But when you take the, pro the science on prosociality into account, it turns out the tort law is actually pretty well designed along the same lines. Have I got that yeah. right? Yeah, no, because one of the great puzzles of tort law is that if you look at it, it, it shouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> the theory there, doesn't doesn't fly, yeah. Right, it, it, there should be chronic under-deterrence. Um, and uh, what what I figured out after reading all this uh, all of this literature on pro-sociality is that um, the reason why tort law does seem to deter people pretty well is because it's based on the assumption that most of us don't want to hurt other people in the first place. So you don't need to have a massive and perfect incentive system to keep most of us from running over people in, in a crosswalk. You just need to put a little thumb on the scale to make us be a little 
a little bit more careful than we might be otherwise. But the flip side of that is that our tort system is not designed to constrain the behavior of legal entities like corporations. Mm. Our tort doctrines evolve for homo sapiens, not for, you know, uh, I guess, what would you call it, homo homo corporatus? And so uh, I ended up reaching the conclusion that we really need to have different legal rules in many cases for dealing with injuries that are caused by legal entities like corporations as opposed to pro-social human beings. And this, in a way, flies in the face of, um, or, or maybe it connects up in, in a, a more complicated way with the hand formula that every first-year law student learns that implies or suggests that everyone is going to make calculations about their risks that they're facing and sort of go through an actuarial process uh, it sounds like you're suggesting that corporations really that really do that should be governed by uh, stricter tort law rules because they don't have those pro-social forces as individuals do. Right. If we have tort rules that under-deter in the sense that the uh, probable damages are less than the probable harm, um, people still will have an internal incentive to avoid harming others. The corporations won't necessarily. And so if they're coolly and calculatingly performing the hand formula and they're figuring out the probability that they would have to pay damages um, because of the under deterrence that's in the nature of tort law, you know, limits on damages and standing and, and difficulty of proving causation, you can expect corporations to be injuring far more people than is efficient. And that's assuming that all we care about is efficiency. <laughs> does sound like, um, well, it, I think in a way, the uh, legal theory on criminal law has done better in a, making a different assumption. There is a lot of legal theory about the expressive power of criminal law and sort of these other things. And you described the fact that that uh, comes from uh, an awareness that criminal law doesn't make a lot of sense on the incentive basis. Um, yeah. But it's a, it's a very ripe field, it seems like, for your approach um, and not just in symbolic ways, but actually in thinking about the science of how people react to things like a criminal law. Yes. And, and it, it was interesting to me to see how criminal law, almost criminal law, more than almost any other area of doctrine that I looked at, never really bought in to the rational selfishness assumption. And has, has it, the literature there shows um, much more um, attention to this, um, uh, to the, the real ways people behave. It never got, it never drifted far from the reality of human behavior and the evidence on human behavior. Um, and it was interesting to me to see that. It's in the private law areas like contract and tort and property where law and economics uh, really held sway for a couple of decades and uh, really moved people in a direction where the theory just didn't seem to match either the doctrine or the reality of human behavior. And I wonder why that is. Is it, Do you think it's because of the corporate emphasis of so much legal practice that legal theory tended to operate uh, with economic uh, premises uh, in those areas, whereas criminal law is about individuals more? Yeah, well, I think that's certainly possible. I mean, the reality is that um, when we're talking about property, uh, tort and contract, um, we're dealing more with people that we think of as normal 
And so it may be that uh, people simply felt more comfortable making assumptions, and as it turned out, I believe, incorrect assumptions about how normal people behave. With criminal law, you're dealing with such a wide range of human behavior, some of which is quite deviant. It may be that, that uh, criminal law scholars simply were uncomfortable from the beginning with treating us all like widgets who you know, respond the same way to uh, every incentive. Um, but that's, I mean, that's pure speculation. I'm simply going to satisfy myself by complimenting the criminal law scholars <laughs> right. for doing the fine job they did, I think, especially by comparison in uh, staying reasonably close to the reality of human behavior. <laughs> right. And the flip side of that is is a, a pretty strong uh, implicit criticism of the academic climate of the 80s that you referred to. I wonder if you could say more about the way university work or law school work uh, tended to create um, theories that didn't factor in the way people actually behave, even when the science was developing that could have showed it to be the case. Yeah, well, I think I think the the biggest criticism I can mount, and, and by the way, for please understand, I am one of those 1980s people. Right. <laughs> my, my first 10 years of writing were very much in the classic law and economics mode. I have a case book with David Barnes on law and economics. Um, but I think that all of us who are writing in that style in the 1980s, we can be criticized correctly for falling prey to ideology more than science, in the sense that there are plenty of areas where the rational selfishness assumption works pretty well, because again, remember, we're Mr. Hyde part of the time. Um, but what I saw over and over was that in situations where that assumption didn't work well, there was this tremendous pressure to somehow still make the homo economicus model work. Tremendous pressure to jam a square peg into a round hole. And, and you would see articles where people would practically break their spines, twisting themselves around, trying to make legal doctrines or observations of human behavior fit into this rather narrow and I think, you know, sometimes useful, but sometimes not very useful approach. So one of the, the classic moves that I saw over and over again that um, uh, I think people, you know, will recognize immediately is when um, you would point out that the typical homo economicus model implies that we're all sociopaths and that we would lie, cheat, steal, murder for gain. One of the standard moves that I would see a lot of um, uh, people who favored law and economics make is they would say, oh, no, 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 that's okay. We can simply assume that people have a taste for ethics. We can simply assume that they have a taste for altruism. There's nothing in economics that says that you only get utility for money. The problem with that move is that it destroys the predictive value of economics. It makes it a tautology because what you're saying now is that economics is all about people responding to incentives, and incentives are anything that people respond to. I mean, once you start saying that people can you get utility from anything, you've essentially given up your ability to make predictions. So, you know, if people get utility from helping Exxon make more profits, you would actually have the possibility that the law of demand would be violated and that as you raise the price of Exxon gasoline, consumers would altruistically want to buy more of it. So, you know, that was the sort of thing I saw. And it struck me that that was really, in its own way, a very unscientific approach. That was a way of avoiding the evidence as opposed to confronting it. Right. I, I think that's, it's very compelling um, the way you lay it out especially because what you uh, offer is a counter model. You can't beat something with nothing, and you present actual principles 
uh, that allow you to distinguish the sorts of pro-social things people actually do from, for example, hey, I feel bad for Exxon. Let's make sure they have more money. I'm going to you know, buy gas I don't need or whatever. And you've got an actual model that I think is, is once uh, one has a handle on all three prongs, um, really does do a lot of work. And maybe that'll help us also get toward the prescriptive part of your book. But I wonder if you could describe, actually, I'm curious about your process of developing this three-pronged uh, model of pro-sociality and pro-social thinking uh, for your theory to, to take on the homo economicus. Well, the, the first place I started was it was pretty evident that, that you just have to be denying reality to deny the Jekyll Hyde syndrome. I mean, when you can see it on an fMRI, you know, you, you know there's something going on. Um, but the puzzle was to make that useful, we had to have some sense of when people tended to be pro-social and when they tended to be purely selfish. Because just knowing that people go from one to the other isn't helpful if they're doing it randomly. So the, the process was, I will just say, very labor-intensive. <laughs> Essentially, I read those thousand different studies and I looked for patterns. I said, can we find the sorts of situations where people seem to be more inclined to sacrifice, to avoid hurting others, and to follow ethical rules. And if you start reading the studies, interestingly enough, the patterns actually jump out at you very, very quickly. You see over and over again that in certain circumstances and under certain experimental conditions, people are much more likely to be cooperative and pro-social than they are in others. Now, luckily, you know, you don't want to rely on, even though I looked at a huge number of um, different studies, it, I was pleased to find there were also some meta-surveys that had done statistical analyses of multiple studies that backed up my impressions from eyeballing the data. So the meta-surveys confirmed the same thing, that there were in particular these three social cues that seem to be especially important in triggering pro-social behavior. And finally, I dug into the developmental psychology and social psychology literature and found out that these three social cues map really nicely onto three very basic elements of human behavior that have been studied for decades and are pretty well accepted. So, so what I focused on at the end was I said, look, pro-sociality is going to depend on a lot of things, but we've got three triggers here that are pretty reliable. Perfect. Let's build the suspense another second because I want to pause just a moment to highlight how data-driven this this was. I mean, you you have theoretical things that you say jumped out at you, but it also sounds as if they're really coming from an enormous steeping in facts. Uh, And I think that's really uh, one of the most extraordinary things about the book. It really stands out in saying this is about actual things that are scientifically found and we build the theory from there rather than imposing it from above. So I think it's, it's really a remarkable uh, approach and it, it stands out not just in the fact that you've got such a, a, a nice model that emerges and you're about to tell us about it, but um, in the fact that it's, it's driven by really enormous amount of uh, focus on actual work done in scientific ways. So just wanted to highlight that. And now I invite you to tell us, how this model works. Uh, I think uh, well, it's well, very e- elegant. Thank you so much for saying that, Jim, because that's exactly what I tried to do. I saw when I first ran into the a resistance to the idea of conscience that this was going to be an uphill battle. And yeah. so I literally put years into making sure that I understood the data and that it supported you know, it supported the thesis that I was advancing. So thank you very much for saying that, because that is exactly 
what I tried my best to do. Um, so going back to the model, the, the three triggers that I focused on are obedience to authority or instructions from authority, um, imitation of others' behavior, and then the magnitude of the benefits to others. And that's because they map onto three really well understood um, aspects of human behavior. Um, one is obedience, and anyone who's familiar with the Milgram experiments knows that uh, people can be instructed to harm others. We need to look at the positive side. They can also be instructed to help others and to follow ethical rules. <laughs> and that shows up in all of the experiments. When you tell people to behave pro-socially, they're much more likely to behave pro-socially, even if there's no material reward from doing so. So that was trigger number one. What and that, has the, re- that one has the caveat also that there needs to be a sense of in-group identity, right? You can't just have an authority who's got power say that it needs to be an authority who you feel is part of your uh, world and is, is one of uh, speaks to you from the place you are um, not just an authority who has handcuffs. That's no, that's exactly right. And in fact, that caveat applies to all three. Okay. Yeah. We only imitate people that we feel a social connection to. We only care about the benefits to people we feel a social connection to, and we only obey authorities that we feel a social connection to. Um, I do talk about that a little bit in the book. I kind of take that for granted in most cases, but if you don't have that base, then you're not going to get the results you want. That's the bad news. The good news is it turns out our sense of who belongs to our society is incredibly plastic. I mean, you can, anybody who's seen a person interact with a chihuahua or a favorite car understands that uh, it's actually not that hard to develop social ties among human beings, much less chihuahuas and cars. But, uh, but no, you've got to start from that basis. If, you've, if you're getting instructions from someone that you think of as an outgroup member, that's not going to work too well. But if it's coming from an authority that you view as part of your social group, and again, people in most, developed wor- most of the developed world define that pretty broadly and can be induced to define it more broadly still, um, then instructions have an enormous effect on behavior, even when they're not backed up with sanctions. The, the second trigger, and it's, it's kind of amazing when you realize how strong this is, but people simply do what other people do. It's sheer monkey see, monkey do. So if you think that the people around you are behaving pro-socially, you're going to behave pro-socially. And if they're not, you won't. And it's as simple as, you know, who is going to be the first person to throw a chewing gum wrapper on a clean floor? If there's 100 chewing gum wrappers there already, of course you're going to probably drop your own. So that tends toward imitation, which again is really well studied in social and developmental psychology, influences pro-sociality. By the way, this relates to the broken windows idea and policing. I was just going to bring that visible, up. Yeah, you actually reinterpret disorder, that. It, it makes sense. And I think Dan Kahan has cited some wonderful studies that mass looting events often involve people who've never been arrested for anything before. You know, people who would never have occurred to them to violate the law except when they see everyone around them doing it. Um, And then the third trigger, which I thought was really interesting, was that people seem to be almost intuitive utilitarians and that they're pretty responsive to whether or not their sacrifice is going to help other people a little or help them a lot. And so the more benefits we see to others from our own pro-sociality, the more likely we are to act pro-socially. So, you know, if I were in a rush and someone tried to stop me to ask directions, I might say I didn't have time to help them. 
but if I were in a rush and someone suddenly started having an epileptic fit and fell down next to me, I would definitely stop and dial 911 because it's that difference in the sense of the importance of your help or the importance of your refraining from harming to the other person. So what you get from all of these three is it's, it's not a perfect model. It's more like a meteorological, meteorological model. It's like a weather model. You can get probabilities. You can't get certainties. But what I can say with a fair degree of probability is if you can line up those three social signals to support a particular behavior, you're going to get a lot more of that behavior even if the material incentives aren't there. And, you know, that's been shown over and over in experiments. It's really not, you can't really reasonably dispute it anymore. That's really the thing that stands out as well, is that uh, this list, these three things, in each case, what you're focused on is not the way this uh, phenomenon changes the incentives. It's You can control so that nothing recognizable as a reward is coming uh, or is forthcoming um, to the subjects of these experiments, but these triggers nonetheless absolutely drive um, a lot of the mode setting when people are choosing what mode they're acting in uh, and ending up in a pro-social mode. So I think that's what continues to be startling as I reread sections of the book, that it really is not about incentives uh, at all, but but about social identity choices that people are making. Yes, and it's so powerful and so so unappreciated, especially among policy experts, oddly enough. Um, but I do want to talk about one thing about incentives you have to keep in mind, is that for, in order for these social cues to work, you have to give them what I think of as breathing room. Hmm. And in particular, you have to make sure that the personal rewards from selfishness are not too great. So the other thing we find in the data is that even if you line up all of the social cues to support conscientious behavior, if you create a temptation for self-benefit that's too large, people will tend to start defecting and start acting selfishly. So another lesson that I carried from the data was that if you want people to be good, one of the first things you have to do is not tempt them too much to be bad. Hmm. which is another danger that goes along with emphasizing incentives. Unless your incentives are perfectly designed so that they never reward bad behavior, you may actually be snuffing out conscience by creating tempting opportunities to benefit from selfish behavior that's harmful to the group or to the interests that you're trying to encourage people to protect. And arguably that's sort of what happened with the stock options scenario that, uh, the uh, short-term temptations of manipulating expectations and inflating the value of stock options overwhelmed the whole idea, which was that it was going to um, lead in another direction. The incentive was too blunt or too clumsy. Um, yes, and, and it I'm, actually it actually snuffed out the behavior you want. If, historically, if you look at the way we used to compensate CEOs, and by historically I mean in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was interesting. A, a highly paid CEO got a million dollars a year. And by the way, many people were outraged. I mean, now it seems laughably small. Okay. But they got a million dollars a year. Much of it was in flat salary. There was no pay for performance. Um, and 
I don't think many people would be able to say that corporations in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s were performing noticeably worse than they are today. Um, but what we did by emphasizing personal reward, which is what pay for performance really does, is we create a social situation where our, our three levers are all encouraging selfish behavior. We're telling people we want them to be selfish because the the presumption is that if they maximize their pay, they'll be maximizing their performance. Since everybody's being paid for performance, or at least other CEOs are, we're sending the signal that other CEOs are acting selfishly and focusing on maximizing their own their own uh, you know compensation. And finally, we're sending the message that selfishness must be good because that's why we're rewarding it. We're right, trying to else? encourage yeah. it. And again, so, that's your your three pronged model: authority, conformity. And empathy; those are all those levers uh, encouraging the, the CEOs to be selfish. Um, and at the same time, I wonder if there's not a certain set of levers for the, the directors, right? Because they see other boards of directors acting a certain way, and they may have more empathic connection for the CEO that they want to reward than for the other employees of the company. Well, you know, it's interesting. At least with directors, we haven't mucked things up quite. Badly, actually, not nearly as badly as for CEOs. There's still there's still a fair amount of breathing room for the mm. director. I think who wants to do a, a good job of protecting the interests of the corporation and the shareholders, as opposed to helping the CEO. So my my view is that again, people tend to they overestimate both the power and <laughs> the uh, and the um, the uh, you know the supposed. Uh, self-interest of directors. They're neither, they're neither as powerful nor as knavish as people uh, often seem to think they are, at least if they're not that familiar with the business world. Mm. So uh, I, still have, I still have some confidence that we haven't completely messed up directors' uh, social cues. <laughs> but CEOs, I think we've done a pretty good job of uh, moving things in exactly the wrong direction if you want your CEO to focus on something other than becoming as rich as possible. <laughs> Right, and you refer to that as suppressing conscience, um, which I think is a great phrase because it, it it makes it clear that the the pro social impulses are there, the and it really is a matter of of tweaking uh, these three levers and thinking, being thoughtful about how not just incentives but uh, social cues are set up as well. And I think that we're switching toward the the fully prescriptive part of the book. I wonder um, if you were to think about your book being a, a bestseller or having impacts on national conversations, where would you like it to land hardest in changing the way policy is set? Well, the, the, the number one lesson of the book, I think, is that we need to take conscience seriously. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't, we're inadvertently killing it off. And it's all, again, there's an enormous amount of data. Uh, it, it comes in different forms, and it's a complicated question, of course, but there's a lot of data that supports the view that societies that promote pro-social behavior are more peaceful, more prosperous, have higher growth rates, have higher levels of investment than societies that don't. And there's also a fair amount of data. I I am particularly fond of Robert Putnam's wonderful book, Bowling Alone, which is another exhaustive survey of of hard data that, that indicates that Overall, um, pro-sociality is on the decline in the United States. You know, you can, you can explain away any one of these empirical findings, but when you look at the overall pattern, it's amazing how much data there is that suggests that the American people 
are more selfish and less ethical than they used to be. Everything from cheating rates have gone up significantly at universities to people drive more poorly um, to uh, people donate less time to political campaigns. Lots and lots of, of hard data that points in a, in a disturbing direction. So my number one lesson would be um, encourage understanding pro-social behavior and encouraging it in appropriate situations is absolutely essential for civilized life and for the effective application of the rule of law. And we're never going to get there if we don't take it seriously as a phenomenon and as something we can use as a tool. Say we in that case, are, are you, you thinking um, primarily about policymakers or is it something that seems to connect with anyone who's in charge of an institution of any kind that well, might think I, more about the social cues that they're setting up? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking about policymakers, but of course the lessons are relevant to anyone who wants to influence how people behave. Hmm. So I've, I've also found it very useful as a parent <laughs> and a neighbor. I've had a number of law school deans who have been reading the book looking for tips on how to get the alumni to make more donations, and I'd, I'd hate to see someone misuse it, <laughs> but right. but it really is, I, I view it as a sort of, um, you know, owner's manual to the, to the, human, <laughs> to the human being. Uh, if you're interested in getting people to focus on something other than making themselves as well off as possible at other people's expense. Because really, we're in a situation where, you know, humanity faces plenty of challenges from the natural world. We could, we could yet have an avian flu that shows up and that wipes us all out. But most of everything from global warming to tax evasion to the financial crisis to uh, pollution, um, and even in the case of a bird flu, you know, the inability to to define an epidemic. A lot of it has to do, a lot of our biggest challenges are getting people to do things that make us all better off instead of worse off. So why would you not want to have every tool you could possibly have in your toolbox? Mm-hmm. And conscience is a very powerful tool. Do you feel any particular um, motivation to shift the culture within academia to uh, try to change social cues so that, for example... Um, there's better interaction among the disciplines and less of a groupthink mentality of the sort that you indicate might have infected the, the in the enthusiasm for law and economics in the 80s. Oh, absolutely, and I and I think one of the most important things that academics need to do, and legal academics in particular, is to stop indoctrinating our students mm. that people are rational and selfish. Because if you look at our three social cues, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so, you know, there is, I, I don't know of any evidence to establish this causal link, but at least in logic, the fact that we've been teaching the homo economicus model to our business and, and policy, our business leaders and policymakers and legal experts for 30 years, in logic, you would expect that one of the effects that would have would be to reduce their overall level of ethical behavior. So particularly in a professional school, and another thing this project has done is completely revive my interest in the notion that law should be taught as a profession with ethical obligations and that perhaps our law schools have, been not, have not been doing as good a job of that over the past few years or decades as we should have. Mm. Um, terrific. I, I just... 
pause to, to mention that I, I was drawn to the evidence that you did point out about economics majors actually performing differently in studies and being uh, less pro-social in the experimental data um, on, on average. Um, also, I love the fact that um, as people get older, they get more pro-social. They develop as people even beyond the late post-adolescence. Um, but to get to that, back to that last point, have you changed your teaching in any way as you've uh, absorbed some of these lessons? Absolutely. No, and, and, and in fact, it, it may irritate my students sometimes, <laughs> but I no longer try to be value neutral in the way I teach. I am no longer a moral relativist. Um, I am very upfront that uh, I adopted my personal goal, um, you know, some version of trying to make the world a better place. <laughs> I don't tell them they have to. <laughs> but I don't make any bones about the fact that I think that I, you know, that, that it is unfortunate if people think they were put on this earth to amass as much money as possible, as opposed to being put on this earth for, uh, for the overall benefit of whichever social group you want to define as your in-group. Excellent. And I, I foresee the, you know, the possibility that um, as you carry this work forward and as people absorb more of it, there may be thinking that can happen about corporate cultures as well and the social contexts and cues um, that expand the idea of the in-group and also just um, make things work uh, better so that there's less psychopathy, <laughs> right? Yeah, ex um, from exactly. From these persons that, uh, you know, the, the court has said they're persons and we need to think about how to deal with persons that are actually corporations. Exactly. Well, I really, we've taken a lot of your time, but I really appreciate your generosity in um, talking about your book with us. And uh, as I say, I think it's really a terrific intervention and an important one. Um, is there anything that we've left out in, in the, uh, the way that it, it's entering into the world and entering the conversation? Well, there's, obviously there's a lot more discussions that people can have on this, but I, I really appreciate your inviting me to, um, uh, to do this interview, and I hope that uh, we'll have given at least some of our listeners a chance to make a start looking in this direction. Absolutely, and it seems to me that, you know, if not the beginning, a very important step in this discipline, which might be called law and behavioral economics or law and uh, scientific economics rather than theoretical economics. I think it's really terrific. Yeah, there's so a, and there's so a lot of interesting work that remains to be done. So thanks so much. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, appreciate it. Once again, that was Professor Lynn Stout of UCLA speaking with me about the work that went into her book, Cultivating Conscience, How Good Laws Make Good People. Thank you for listening. I'm Jim Vonderheit. This has been New Books in Law.